Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, August 20th. More than 5,000 Calgary Catholic students have registered for online learning this upcoming school year. We'll find out what it's going to look like and what the deadline to register is from Calgary Catholic School Board Chief Superintendent Brian Zumlis. Calgary's Chinatown is a unique neighbourhood and the city wants to create a long-term plan for that area and they're asking for our help. We get details from Terry Wong, Executive Director of the Chinatown Business Improvement Area. Hundreds of residents in B.C.'s southern Okanagan region are out of their homes and thousands more must be ready to leave on short notice as a nearby wildfire grows in size. With an update on the fires in the Okanagan, we're joined this morning by Global B.C. anchor and reporter Nitu Garcha. The third night of the Democratic National Convention included remarks from Donald Trump's presidential rival in 2016, Hillary Clinton, as well as former President Barack Obama. We get all the details from Reggie Cicchini, who is in Delaware for the virtual convention. And is technology affecting the time couples spend together and their relationships? We'll hear about a new U of A study on the topic. 641 now and hundreds of residents in BC's southern Okanagan region are out of their homes. Thousands more ready to leave on short notice. Nearby wildfire continues to grow in size. With an update on the fires in the Okanagan, we're joined this morning by Global's BC, Global BC's anchor and reporter, Nitu Garcha. Hi, Nitu. Hi, Sue. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. What is the latest right now? Of course, my pleasure. It is unfortunately another nervous morning after a difficult night for hundreds of people who were forced out of their homes on Tuesday. Some 300 properties were evacuated just hours after this fire was first reported. The cause is still under investigation, but there was a severe thunderstorm that hit the area on Sunday sparking about 100 fires within a few days. Uh, So there's also been a heat wave affecting southern BC. And this is some 40 firefighters tried to get the upper hand on this fire overnight because winds were calm, but they're already picking up this morning and are expected to continue to do so throughout the day. In the city of Penticton, it's a popular tourist hotspot. There's very little vacancy right now. We're seeing a lot of Alberta license plates, among others. Uh, Officials are urging people to avoid the high-risk areas, including the popular Skaha Bluffs Provincial Park, uh, boaters on Skaha Lake, the one that's on the south end of town, uh, closer to the U.S. border and Asuyas. Uh, and they say for the most part, people are following that advice and they're hoping that as this community continues to host out-of-town visitors and summer vacationers that that will continue to be the case because this next 24 hours is going to be critical this wildfire has grown to an estimated 1400 hectares Mm -hmm. and with the pandemic posing added challenges there could be another 3700 properties that are on alert right now that could be ordered out of their businesses and homes. Nitu, I want to talk to you about the the COVID issue and how that complicates things, but is there any estimation at this point of how many homes have been lost and property damage, that sort of thing? At last word, Sue, we heard one home had been destroyed. It's located on a cul-de-sac in a subdivision up on a hill about 15 minutes south of Penticton along Skaha Lake, and those flames narrowly missed the neighboring Mm. properties on that cul-de-sac. So you can imagine how the neighbors are feeling in that one family that got that devastating phone call. We'll get another update later this morning, and hopefully it remains at just that one home that's been destroyed. But to give you an idea, among the 3,700 properties that are on evacuation alert are businesses, bed and breakfast, a winery, orchards, the industrial area of Penticton. So this is people's livelihoods and their homes that are potentially at risk from this fire. And you mentioned the pandemic. Well, 
physical distancing is key right now. And the city's mayor is saying that because Penticton is home to one of the largest community and convention centers outside of Vancouver, they are prepared and ready to house potentially thousands of people if that wind shifts and their evacuation alerts get upgraded to orders. And neighboring communities are saying, we'll step up too. We're, we're willing to give people and pets a place to stay, but they're hoping it doesn't come to that. Wow. And as you say, I mean, Albertans love to go to that area of BC. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful spot. So definitely tourists that, that could, well, really need to be paying attention to what's going on around them. Uh, what about has the wildfire front? It, it's not been too bad up until this point, but it seems like now it's really kicking into full gear. Absolutely. We heard so many people and even ourselves in the newsroom saying, you know, at least with how crazy 2020 has been and unexpected, there has not been as much wildfire smoke and poor air quality as we've become accustomed to in this province. Uh, we've had record-breaking wildfire seasons in 2017 and then 2018 broke those records. This year, we had a late start to the season. The heat just didn't come. But then in late July and into August, it just and we've broken some temperature records in some parts of the province and now this heat wave and ongoing thunderstorms lightning caused fires are really causing uh, some big problems in the area and is there any relief you speak of storms but is there any rain coming your way Luckily, there is tomorrow morning. So this uh, next 48 hours or so is really going to give the ground crews an opportunity to try and get the upper hand on what's still an out-of-control wildfire. But the challenge is that it's up on such difficult terrain. It's a steep mountainside. Those Albertans who visit this area will know it is difficult for ground crews to get up there and fight those flames. So they're really relying on the aerial support, which will be out in full force now that the sun is coming up. Mm -hmm. And that's not the only fire that's burning in the Okanagan. Is it? I mean, we're starting to see a couple more popping up too. That's right. And as I mentioned, just out of the 500 or so fires that are burning across BC, more than 100 of them sparked just in the last couple days because of Sunday night's severe thunderstorms. Some people captured, you know, how Twitter gets flooded with photos after a storm like mm-hmm. that of the lightning strikes. People were calling this the most significant thunderstorm and lightning that they have ever seen in British Columbia, longtime residents. So just to give you an idea of how significant that single storm was and what it's led to this week. Wow. Well, we're wishing you much rain and much relief pretty soon. Thanks so much for for joining us with the details. Us too. Thank you so much. That's Nitu Garcha, Global BC anchor and reporter. It's 6.47 now, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, a mix of unique single-family homes, townhomes, and condos. 8.19 on your Thursday morning, and it looks like at this point more than 5,000 Calgary Catholic students have registered for online learning. Boy, thousands registering, and uh, the numbers continue to grow. The district is expecting that number to continue to go up before they officially close registration for online learning. Wanted to have that conversation this morning, and with all the details, we're joined by the Chief Superintendent with the Calgary Catholic School Board, Brian Zumalis. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Sue. Thanks so much for joining us. Is, is that correct? Are we at more than 5,000 now, the, the kids that are staying home and, and doing online learning as, as of this point anyway? That is absolutely correct, and that's not surprising for us because before, before we launched our online school, our initial thought it would be somewhere between 10 and 20%. So at a school jurisdiction with 60,000 students, 10% is about 6,000. And so, uh, you know, my guess is we're going to land somewhere between six and 10,000 students as we move forward here. Have you been hearing from parents and, and are they letting you know why they're, they're really deciding to do the online schooling route this year? Are, are people really that worried and, and not 
I guess, is it that, that they're not feeling secure in sending the kids back with, with a, a healthy plan in place at the schools? I'm not sure about that. I know here in Alberta, we uh, live in a province that has lots of choices and there's lots of choices in education. I think, uh, you know, what I've heard from parents is that there's lots of uncertainty around how COVID-19 impacts young children. And uh, I have a doctorate in education, not in the medical <laughs> field, but I do, uh, you know, we do have many parents in our school jurisdiction who are medical professionals who, uh, in fact, we have uh, one individual, one parent who studies or had studied viruses at the University of Calgary. And uh, she has presented to our board of trustees and uh, shared that, you know, there's very little known about the impact of COVID-19 with young children. And there's only three or four studies that, and the reason why is because schools were shut down when the pandemic started. So right. there wasn't a real opportunity to do a lot of research on the impact of young children. But, you know, there is research out there. There's a, a website called uh, Canada for Masks. And at Canada for Masks, over 1,500 medical professionals have uh, recommended that we wear masks at all grade levels and so that's the direction that the calgary catholic school district has chosen as we resume here in the fall well i think you hit on it it's key we have the choice and that's up to parents to make that decision so when will the deadline be i believe it was supposed to be tomorrow have you extended when folks can sign up for their kids to be uh, schooled online yeah the deadline is tomorrow okay. uh, but what we are doing is uh we are having conversations right now about having a second catchment in September because I have heard from parents that, you know, Brian, we'd like a little bit, we'd like an opportunity to see kind of what would happen in the schools. So we want to check that out for the first couple of days during our staggered entry. So, you know, I think there will be a second catchment in September, but, uh, you know, I communicate weekly with all of the families and uh, parents in Calgary Catholic. And so I've told them to watch my, you know, newsletter of next week and we'll give more information as we go forward. Appreciate the update, Brian. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Have a good day, too. You too. That's Brian Zumalis, who's the chief superintendent with the Calgary Catholic School Board. At 8.11, Chinatown is getting its first ever cultural plan and Calgarians are being asked to take part in a survey to share our thoughts on this very important community. Joining us with details this morning is Terry Wong, Executive Director of the Chinatown Business Improvement Area. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. First off, can you give us a little bit of history about Calgary's Chinatown? Sure. This year we're celebrating the 110th anniversary of Calgary's Chinatown in our third location. And in the Chinatown area, we are looking to ask the citizens of Calgary to give us input as to how to celebrate the next 110 years. Why is a Chinatown so important, not just to, uh, you know, the, the, the group that would live there, the Chinese folks that are, are such an important part of our community, but to the rest of us as well? Chinatown is a significant uh, cultural enclave for Calgary. It demonstrates a different sort of diversity that Calgary brings into into the, uh, the, the city. And again, recognizing the migrants who came from China way back in uh, oh, about 110 years ago to build a railway. But not just that, but also the recent migrants who came in to build Calgary in many different ways, whether it be from a professional perspective or, or a service perspective. So what we want to do is celebrate Chinatown for Calgarians, for tourists, and for visitors in many different ways through a cultural plan and through a local area plan. And I know that you personally have some experience you wanted to mention. You know, I've heard you talking about Vancouver's Chinatown or sort of the loss thereof and how important it is to keep the Chinatown here in Calgary alive and well. 
Certainly. And in growing up in Vancouver, Chinatown during the 60s and 70s, it was a very vibrant place for people who lived, worked, and played, people who came in from uh, suburban areas to, to get together with their family, to get together with uh, you know friends uh, over dinner, and to get together with uh, cultural associations and, uh, and um, uh, you know, mm-hmm. events and festivals. But over the years, uh, we've seen uh, Vancouver's Chinatown kind of fall, fall down from a cultural perspective, such that people are now going to other places outside of uh, the Vancouver Chinatown. Calgary has a chance of doing the same, and we don't want that to happen. We want to make sure that Calgary's Chinatown is the hub for cultural activity. So talk to us a little bit about this survey. What are you asking of us? And this is not just for the Chinese community. This is for every Calgarian to take part in, correct? Definitely. We're looking to make Calgary Chinatown one Chinatown for everyone. And we say everyone, everyone of all uh, ethnicity, diversity, uh, whether you come from Calgary or outside of Calgary, we want you to be able to come down and enjoy Chinatown for cultural heritage, the uh, cuisine and dining, the different sort of entertainment or different sort of uh, retail that you can uh, enjoy. But to be able to do that, we need to understand uh, who we're serving and what is it they're looking for. So a cultural plan will help us serve that. And following that, that will influence what we call a local area plan, which will allow owners and developers to build the Chinatown you want. I'm going to give people the website where they can go and take this survey in a moment. I'm just on there right now. And I mean, it's asking questions like, you know, how often do you visit Chinatown? You know, what's your age? What's your relationship with Chinatown? Tell us your earliest memory of visiting. What was most memorable? What makes a Chinatown special? You know, when you can include it among other Calgary neighborhoods, things like that. So it really is super inclusive to everybody. And it looks like you really want to get a, a very broad uh, response so that you can create this plan. What do you, what would you like to see? Could you give us kind of a couple of examples of what you might like to see Chinatown evolve into as we move forward? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Chantel should be the hub for every every and any type of uh, cultural entertainment you would like to see from particularly a diverse ethnic uh, group. So what we want would like to know is what are the things that you'd like to enjoy when you come down there, the types of experiences, whether it be arts and culture, whether it be looking at heritage and, and uh, history, or could it be the dining that you would like to t- uh, try? And if it's dining, what type of dining? Is it the dim sum or the banquet meals or perhaps coming down for a bubble tea or a bubble waffle? These are the types of things that we need to understand so that we can influence both the people who want to come down and, and set up businesses or uh, create uh, art, arts, uh, culture types of events. So that, again, uh, when they know what they need, that we can also build what they, what they need to serve that. Mm-hmm, makes sense. What are you going to do once you get the survey results in? How does that, sort of, how does that plan unfold then? So we've hired a, a cultural consultant uh, who will take the input we have here, shape, prioritize it, review it back with the community as well as, as the public. And based upon that, they, they would document what we call a cultural plan, which is Calgary's first cultural plan, and share it back with city council so city council can prioritize the types of uh, programs, investments that can be made, and again, as I say, to, to create a land use policy and a local area plan that tells our developers and owners how to build it right. I think it's a, a hugely important uh, thing that we all take part in, and it's calgary.ca slash Chinatown if you want to go online and take this survey, and uh, hopefully we can all help build a fantastic Chinatown for tomorrow. Thanks so much for joining us, Terry. Great, thank you. That is Terry Wong. He's the executive director of the Chinatown Business Improvement Area. Again, it is calgary.ca slash Chinatown for the survey.
It's 817. It's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com. on the QE2 is soon going to be on southbound Deerfoot. So a heads up if you're just heading out the door, a lot more busier on southbound Deerfoot as you make your way down towards McKnight Boulevard. Also spotted a broken down vehicle on eastbound McKnight Boulevard. Just off to the right shoulder, though, as you approach Deerfoot. Trails are not causing a huge delay. Over on the southeast end of Deerfoot, still seeing a steady flow of volume between Douglasdale Boulevard and Southland Drive. But overall, sitting at about 20 minutes on northbound Deerfoot, or sorry, about 15 minutes on northbound Deerfoot between Stony Trail and 17. Avenue. McLeod Trail also a great option out of the deep south, a 20-minute drive from Highway 22X up towards 17th. Calgary moved to TELUS and get 227% faster download speeds than Shaw's Freedom Network. Based on open signal independent analysis, visit telus.com slash network. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. It's 7.09 now, and the We Charity scandal highlights an important principle that seems to have fallen out of fashion lately, and that's that charities, government, and politicians are not in the same business and should not be. So overall, is the We scandal making us re-examine charities and how they're run? To discuss, we're joined this morning by Associate Professor Osgood Hall Law School and a contributor to the Globe and Mail, Adam Parachin. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining me. So, I mean, obviously, this is something that Canadians are watching. We've now, you know, the government is certainly trying to let that perhaps fade into the background. But I think we need to look at what happened with this WE scandal. And does it make us re-examine where we send our money, how we donate and what charities we give to? Well, I mean, I think when the story broke, I, I, I perceived it like most media and most Canadians as a political ethics story about the government doling out lucrative contracts on what seems to be a friends and family basis. Mm -hmm. But then it occurred to me that there was a deeper narrative here about uh, the particular kind of institution to which um, this contract was doled out to. And, and, you know, it it was a charity. And I think there's some bigger picture questions here about what we expect of charities and what kinds of relationships we, we hope to see between charities and government. And true enough, we, you know, we just sort of take these charities at face value sometimes, especially if they're one that is, is given favor by a government. You assume that things are on the up and up, and maybe that's time that we, we start to reexamine that and stop assuming things. It's, you know, that, that making an ass of you and me when we assume, correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, the... I think for me the issue here really is when I survey the charity landscape, um, what I see are Canadians who generously donate billions of dollars a year, uh, millions of hours uh, on volunteer basis. And then when you see something like the We Charity scandal, I think the concern that it highlights for me um, is it's just one more piece in the, in the puzzle where it appears we have a, a federal government that's brand heavy and substance light. And the concern is that it looks like charity was drawn on here as a, as a marketing or branding tool for the government. And that's not what charity is about. Ch- charity is about other centeredness. Uh, charity is about other people, not about building your own brand. And, and so there's, there's a story here about the abuse of the institution of charity. 
And we have, what, some 90,000 registered charities in Canada, and so many of them do such great work. So not to do, to belittle them, but is this just a, a reminder to us that we need, need to do a little background checking and, and dig a little deeper before we do things? Absolutely, uh, there is. And, and I think what we're seeing in recent years is um, a... a a more intricate relationship between charities and government. In their first mandate, the Trudeau Liberals uh, relaxed political advocacy rules, and, and the import of that is charities can now act as full-time political lobbyists without sacrificing their charitable status. And so there's something about that that's always struck me as odd, because you know we're pretty good at one thing. Um, when we want more government, we're pretty good at creating more government. And it's not obvious to me that we have charities to, to serve that end. And so, you know, I think people should be asking, you know, legitimate questions of their charities as to how they're spending the money. And if, and if donors don't want to support political lobbying, then, then obviously it's their prerogative to, uh, to, to make that decision and donate accordingly. I mean, charities can be big business, most definitely. And we as Canadians, we invest a lot in charities. So, and they do good work, but how can we dig deeper into a charity, for example, and, and find out if there is some sort of political tie or, or something that we don't like the look of? Well, I'm not sure if uh, many Canadians realize this, but the CRA on, its, on the uh, federal government's website actually has a just an absolute treasure of information about charities. So if donors want to know about the kinds of activities that uh, the charities they support are engaged in, it's actually open to them to um, look at the CRA website. And there's a form there called the T3010 that where charities divulge how they spend their money. Um, and I think that would be that that's an important way to keep charities accountable. But, but I think the point I really want to emphasize here is I'm not so sure here that the, the microscopes get shone on charities. I think it's really, it, it's really Prime Minister Justin Trudeau who's under the microscope here for having seemingly at any rate drawn on charity as a political branding tool. Um, and I just, I can't reconcile that with the other centeredness that I've seen with charity. And I think that's my real, that's really my, my objection. And so I think, you know, that it's a great point and a great reminder. And, and maybe that's something that we need to not just dig into the background of charities, but hold our politicians accountable, make sure that they're not being tied together with businesses like we, because more than a charity, we seems to become a business, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't know a, a lot about the, the we charity, quite frankly. I think we're all sort of discovering that on an iterative basis. But I mean... We, we, we've all grown cynical. We, we understand that the way governments work, that eventually every government faces corruption scandals. But as I said, I think the thing that I find particularly offensive about this one is it's one thing to build a brand. It's one thing to dole out contracts to, to friends of um, kind of a situation. But once you start indulging charity and trying to build your political brand in the halo effect of charity, that that's offensive at a whole other level. Now, now we're actually talking about distorting what's meant to be other-centered and turning it into a self-promoting brand. And, and I actually, I, I'd, I'd hoped that that piece of this would have gotten more coverage. And so that's why I wrote into the Globe. It's an interesting article for sure. And uh, one of the last lines that is written there, you know, we do well to keep charity, government and politics separate. Most definitely. We thank you for your time and we'll point people to theglobeandmail.com where you wrote that article. Thanks for joining us, Adam. 
Thank you very much. Stay well. You too. That is Adam Perichin, who is Associate Prof, Osgood Hall Law School, also contributor to the Globe and Mail, which is where you can find the article that he is referring to. And, uh, you know, he says the We Charity scandal highlights an important principle that's fallen out of fashion, and that is that, yes, charities, government, politicians, they should not be in the same business. There should be no relation between them. And, in fact, that's certainly what we've seen through this scandal right now. Uh, will we get to the bottom of it? Oh, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see on that since uh, Parliament has been prorogued until September. And uh, will things be forgotten as we move forward? I would think not. I think Canadians are keeping uh, their eye on this one as it's yet another scandal for the Trudeau Liberal government. It is uh, coming up on 717. We'll get to your traffic in just a moment. did want to just mention, though, uh, as we look at Apple, boy, uh, that news came down late yesterday. Apple, the brand now worth $2 trillion. Big tech grip on us through the pandemic particularly has really tightened. All of Apple's second, so it, it took... Um, 42 years for Apple to get to the $1 trillion value. And all of Apple's second $1 trillion came in the past 21 weeks, while the global economy shrank faster than ever before through the coronavirus pandemic. But boy, we were doing things online and making sure that we had music, apps, and and the like. And uh, that to the tune of a $1 trillion in Apple's favor. 717, it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Come visit the largest concrete-built condos in the city. It's southbound on the QE2 approaching Highway 566. At this point, it's just a left lane getting through. Big backups towards Yankee Valley Boulevard. So you might want to grab 8th Street, just head west uh, towards 8th Street, and then meet up via Highway 566 to bypass the delays. Once you're on southbound Deerfoot, though, a nice smooth drive down towards Memorial. Even Memorial Drive towards the downtown core, we're seeing a pretty good uh, drive in that direction. But once you're in downtown, watch for ongoing construction at Center Street and 3rd Avenue southeast. So just south of the Bow River, there is two-way traffic in effect there. We have... Um, we're now going to make our way down into the northwest, uh, take a look at Crochelle Trail 16th Avenue, give you that update at the bottom of the hour. A message from Canadian Blood Services. Blood donors are needed to fill over 1,400 appointments in Calgary this month. Appointments are required. Book now at blood.ca. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. 609. The third night of the Democratic National Convention included remarks from Donald Trump's 2016 presidential rival, Hillary Clinton. Former President Barack Obama also spoke. Well, let's get all the details on how last evening went. Joining us is Global's Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Uh, Yet another night of the virtual convention. Uh, They sure rolled out the big names last night, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this was a night for the big political luminaries of the party to come out, whether it was uh, the progressives with Elizabeth Warren or Hillary Clinton kind of giving the the so-called I told you so speech uh, or bringing out President Obama in a not only historic uh, moment for the party, but also uh, breaking with tradition to have a former president criticize and critical of a sitting president really was a remarkable night to watch for politics. Do you think this makes a difference in the U.S.? Are are people watching this from from what you understand? Are there any kind of stats that show, you know, how well attended virtually this, this convention is? 
Yeah, I mean, look, people are watching. The TV ratings might be down slightly from where they were during the last convention, but because we're in a new technology age uh, where things are moving to an online stream, uh, there were 30 million people who watched the very first night. There were roughly 30 million people who watched the second night. This is reaching a significant part of the American population. You know, you look at, at, at broadcast numbers, to be able to reach 10% uh, of a country is pretty significant. Uh, and when you pull out some of these big names like Barack Barack Obama, you're going to guarantee that people are going to watch regardless of whether they actually are Democrats or whether they're looking for something to find critical. And even his his wife, Michelle Obama, speaking, was it last night or night before, I believe? And she, I mean, she was extremely powerful. And Hillary Clinton, the, the Republicans can't stand her. But those who are still of the you know Democratic mind, they they are still big fans of Hillary Clinton. But did she was she uh, on the television, the the, uh, the actual broadcast or did they kind of put her in that first hour to keep her off? off the TV. Well, I mean, look, she was in that first hour, which was still carried by the U.S. cable networks uh, uh, like CNN and MS, uh, NBC. But at the end of the day, it was still a name to be brought out because, look, there are still a lot of Americans who feel that this should have been a Hillary Clinton presidency. And she acknowledged that in her speech by saying, look, you can win uh, all of these votes and still lose. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about here. So it was a moment. Look, there's lots of Democrats that don't like Hillary Clinton. But at the end of the day, she does represent a still significant part of the establishment within the party and having her up there speak saying look at the things that have gone wrong uh, according to democrats under this president right now things can and should change an historical moment when kamala harris you know she cemented her place in history how important is this do you think moving towards the election well, look, this is an incredibly important decision, not only for Joe Biden, but for Democrats as a whole, because it is a shifting demographic within their party. It is no longer uh, an old white man party that we saw decades ago. It represents what America looks like. And having somebody like Kamala Harris, uh, the daughter of immigrants, somebody who isn't uh, a, a white female politician being on that ticket is is remarkable for a party that really is trying to change and move into the future. And she acknowledged that last night, talking about the women who made strides to get her where she is today, but also giving a nod to that progressive left, saying that she understands that change can be difficult and things will take time, but said that she promised to speak truth and promised uh, if people have faith in both her uh, and Joe Biden, things can get done. This is this is where the Democratic Party is looking to move as they now eye 2024. A response from the president, Donald Trump, I'm sure, came on Twitter, no doubt after uh, most of the big names got out there and spoke. I mean, look, the contrast was incredibly stark last night. You had former President Barack Obama giving the first and most stinging rebuke of a sitting president. And at the exact same time, you had Donald Trump using Twitter to say that Obama spied on him uh, and, and saying uh, a kind of negative things about the Obama presidency. It really was this contrast of language uh, in the political sphere uh, on a night that the Democrats really were trying to ensure the spotlight was on them. But President Trump uh, did what he could to put the spotlight on him and has been on Twitter all morning long, either being critical of those that were speaking last night or simply trying to drum up anger within his base. Is this the final night then tonight of the uh, of this uh, convention? Joe Biden, I know he's the, obviously the keynote speaker tonight. Will this wrap things up? 
This is the end of the convention tonight. Joe Biden will accept that nomination uh, as presidential candidate for uh, for the Democratic Party. This is a moment Biden has been waiting 30 plus years for it is his third attempt. Uh, and he has promised himself to be a transition candidate to allow for the Democratic Party to move in a new direction. So when we see him speak tonight, that will be the end of it. And then all eyes will look to next week to see what the Republicans uh, tend to do uh, for their program, which starts on Monday. And there is no program that's been released yet. Is, so is there a program, do you think, or they just haven't released the details at this point? And, and why not? Well, I mean, look, they, they, they initially tried to get this done in Florida, and then obviously coronavirus played uh, into that. It was originally supposed to be in North Carolina, but coronavirus kind of sidelined that. And they haven't really made any kind of comment as to how virtual this is going to be. We know the president may try to speak three or four times over the four-night uh, uh, program, but we don't know any of the celebrities, any of the musical acts, or even any of the political higher-ups within the Republican Party that are going to be a part uh, of this process for the president. It really does seem to be put together uh, uh, in a very last minute kind of way. And we may have to wait until the weekend to actually find out what's going to take place 24 hours later. And you're right in this online age that could play a role in how people vote, young people particularly. I mean, when you're watching something virtually, yes, the Democratic convention was was a little bit weird to watch it that way, but it was quite slick how it was put together, wasn't it? It was. It almost felt like you were watching uh, a series of, of kind of uh, um, uh, political ads that were being put together, but also some really slick put together videos. But it really makes it easy to make these videos viral. And we know that this is what the Trump campaign does. They were putting out some of their ads uh, across uh, the president's Twitter page last night. And this may be what they decide to do going forward. But this really is a way to galvanize these young voters who may not be watching TV because they've cut their cable. So they're able to sit there and watch this on social media platforms and share the comments the uh, and uh, the kind of the experience as they're actually watching it. Yeah, and you can get the little chunks and the bits that you want without having to sit and watch an entire, you know, hours-long presentation, too. Absolutely. I mean, look, it's very different from one person standing at a podium surrounded by an entire arena full of people when you can have one person staring into a camera and making it feel like they're actually in the living room with you or, uh, you know, in your dorm room with you. This is a way to engage the younger population uh, with Democrats fearing that if they don't come out in the droves that they're looking for, Democrats may fall short uh, to, to Donald Trump and the Republicans later on this year. Anything earth shattering expected from Biden tonight when he does accept that nomination? Well, we are expecting him to talk about what his platform and policy will be going forward. Some of that was teased last night with the gun reform conversation and the racial disparity conversation in this country. But it'll be an opportunity for him to, A, put kind of uh, a check on the Trump presidency while also trying to uh, give a nod to what he did in his eight years as vice president under Barack Obama while using that friendship between the two to kind of bridge together this, uh, you know, the factions within the Democratic Party. I don't think there's going to be anything jaw-dropping. I think I think you're just going to see a man who's waited his entire political career to be in this spotlight, relishing every moment of it. Thanks for your time this morning, Reggie. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. 617, it is time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Just one traffic light from the mountains. Really good start to your major routes this morning. We're dealing with dry road conditions and light volume on Deerfoot, Glenmore, and Crowchild Trails. Out of the southeast, uh, construction is starting up on 18th Street through Quarry Park and Douglasdale. It's between 24th Street and Douglas Glen Boulevard. Two-way traffic is in effect there until early tomorrow morning with speeds down to 50. There's also construction continuing on McLeod Trail just north of Heritage Drive. Expect a very bumpy drive getting across that bridge deck. But uh, overall, sitting at about 20 minutes from Highway 
Highway 22X up to 17th Avenue. A message from Canadian Blood Services. Blood donors are needed to fill over 1,400 appointments in Calgary this month. Appointments are required. Book now at blood.ca. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. In a new study out of the University of Alberta, people who were heavier technology users or believed their partners to be heavier users said they were less satisfied with their couple time and felt worse about their relationship. With more on this, we're joined this morning by the co-author of the study and professor of family science in the Faculty of Agriculture, Life and Environmental Sciences, Adam Gallivan. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Good to be with you. Well, thanks so much for joining us. So talk to us a little bit about this. What was the point of of getting involved with this paper and doing this research? Was this pre-pandemic or during? This was pre-pandemic. And so we we see a lot about technology and we often hear anecdotally people are spending more time on their phones and, and other technology. And so we're curious what effect that had on couple relationships. And talk to us a little bit about what you found, because I know, you know, I think everybody can relate to how you get lost on your phone sometimes, and you certainly forget about and neglect those who are in your world. Yes, definitely. We, we had couples um, take a survey at the end of the day for 10 days, and we found that on days when they reported using more technology themselves or they felt their partner was using more technology, they were less satisfied with the time they spent together if they thought their partner was using more, they also tended to have more conflict during that time. And then ultimately, they were less satisfied overall with their relationship. I don't think that's really much of a surprise. I think we can all probably relate to it even just a little bit. And, and you know, the less time that you spend interacting with your partner, the less romance, the more difficult your relationship can end up being. Yeah, definitely. We, we were curious as well, at, you know, what about shared time? Because... Sometimes people, you know, they're playing video games together, mm-hmm. watching a show together. And what we found is that really didn't seem to have an effect. And it might be that they're just kind of doing the shared time is kind of parallel time. It's not something that's meaningful. They're just kind of both on a device at the same time. So what kind of results did you see? Did you, did you, did you sort of look beyond that and, and what people want to do as a result of, of, of learning this information? Or, or what will you do now that you have this, the study results? Well, I think there's some implications definitely for what people should do. One of the key things that um, my co-author Brendan McDaniel and I have talked about is just um, taking note of your partner. So if you're on a device and they come into the room, look up and look them in the eye for just a second. That eye contact really shows kind of where our attention is. And so little things like that can be really helpful. And, and you know, sometimes it might be, hey, just a second, let me finish this. Uh, being clear that, hey, you, you want to pay attention to them uh, and maybe you just need to finish doing something. Did, did, you, did you find, did you ask about um, communication as a couple and, and how that affects when you're not even on your device? Does that stop us from communicating well at all? That's a great question. Um, we, we didn't analyze that for this particular study, but I think that might be a, a good future direction to think about, you know, are we communicating differently because of the technology that we mm-hmm. use today? And what will you do in the end? Is, is Does this research, does it go anywhere? Does it help maybe, you know, therapists in the end who are, are going to be our, our, our end of line where we're, we might end up? Should we spend too much time on our devices? Yeah, you think uh, a lot of therapists focus on other issues. 
But in a more technological world, maybe they need to ask a few questions about how couples are using technology and say, you know what, let's work on some problematic use. Maybe people have some tech addiction that they need to address in addition to kind of your traditional couple things. Adam, were there any results from the survey and the study that you did that that, that surprised you personally? Um, we thought that we might see a little bit more with the shared technology use. And like I said, we, once we realized that it might just be that we didn't ask the question specific enough, if it's just kind of not planned use, not purposeful, it probably doesn't have as much of an effect. Fair enough. Well, it's definitely an interesting discussion and perhaps one that you can have with your partner as opposed to being on your device later today. You can talk about the results of this study. Thanks so much for joining us with the details, Adam. Thank you. That's Adam Gallivan, study co-author at the uh, Environmental uh, Life and Environmental Sciences. And that study, definitely interesting. Do you think that you spend too much time on your device? Can you see how it might be an issue in your world? And uh, maybe you've got... Maybe you've found some some ways to to be able to put that phone down or or to do things shared, whether it's online or just putting the technology away and spending more quality time together. Uh, quality time down in the United States for sure. The Democratic Convention, the virtual convention, continues tonight. Joe Biden will accept his nomination officially. And uh, it was an interesting one last night. They pulled out a lot of the big names. Uh, Former U.S. President Barack Obama, he spoke and really lit into Donald Trump and urged Democrats to put voting ahead of all else to make a change in the White House. Obama says he hoped the president would take the job seriously, but he hasn't and won't. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job. Because he can't. What he says Trump will do is tear down American democracy itself, if that's what it takes to win another term. So we have to get busy. In remarks from Philadelphia's Museum of the American Revolution, Obama said Americans must do their part and vote to protect democracy's basic tenets. Because that's what's at stake right now. Our democracy. Sagar Magani, Washington. Again, uh, that does uh, the convention continues, wraps up tonight, virtual, of course, and and maybe a precursor to what we see from the Republicans come their convention time starting next week. A little closer to home here in Calgary, dinner clubs. Do you have a dinner club with some of your friends? Well, this might be a different take on it for you. There's a virtual summer candlelight dinner club taking place this week. The Social Concierge is the group behind this. Um, If you know of Dîner en Blanc or Dinner in White, that is an event that happens here in Calgary, and it's a big fan favorite. Well, the group behind that is the one that's doing this Candlelight Dinner Club. Uh, Massive, nationally connected, yet physically distant dinner party, they're calling it. It's a virtual broadcast spanning multiple time zones, includes music, cuisine, and candlelit company. So it could be kind of fun to get into. Features uh, some some of the top restaurants and chef personalities for a cuisine-focused experience. So you can register for free and join the live stream entertainment broadcast and you can get your ticket through a virtual, uh, it's, a, it's a virtual reality social experience is what they're calling it. And, you know, you're kind of gathering, having fun, maybe dinner together while apart. For information, you can go to thesocialconcierge.com. That is the website. I just wanted to give this a plug to uh, Calgary's new Asian Food Center 
Center is celebrating their grand opening tomorrow, August 21st. So a heads up for that one. It is an Ontario-based Indian grocery store chain that opened a few weeks ago, but tomorrow the new Calgary location is welcoming customers in to celebrate for real. This is pretty interesting. Could be a winner. Gets a, a little bit of gifting to... Uh, to supplement what you purchase there, but it's 2110 88th Avenue in the Northeast. If you know the Savannah Bazaar Shopping Center, that's where it is. Freebies galore. The first 100 guests will get pressure cookers. The second 100 will get Karachi pans, and the f- third 100 people will receive milk pans. So that's kind of interesting. It's Calgary's new Asian food center. And again, 88th Avenue in the Northeast. You could be uh, scoring yourself a little gift to go home with. 9.17 now, and it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Just one traffic light from the mountains. Just one vehicle left in that collision at 12th Street and uh, St. George's Drive in the northeast, so it's not causing any major delays through the area. Major routes across the city have seen a very nice wind down, including Deerfoot Trail. That's delay-free through both the northeast and southeast. Glenmore Trail also moving smoothly through the southwest. There is still construction to watch out for on McLeod Trail north of Heritage Drive. It's a bit of a bumpy bridge deck to get across, but volume-wise, we're sitting at about 20 minutes from Highway 22X up towards 17th Avenue downtown. Also downtown, watch for 17th Avenue lane closures to continue in both directions between McLeod Trail and 14th Street. That's just to help out with physical distancing on the sidewalks. Get 20 times the points this Friday to Sunday at Shoppers Drug Mart when you load your offers with the PC Optimum app. Restrictions apply. See digital coupon for details. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard.